This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Sovereignty was never ceded and we recognise their ownership of what always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Second Weekend, a podcast where I recreate the fortnightly tradition of my youth, of chatting to, reading with, and of course, learning from my dad, John. Hi. Uh, once a fortnight, we'll read you a couple of chapters of a mystery novel, much like when Holly was a young'un, as well as having a general gab about each other, the world, and literary crime fiction. Basically like an audiobook with a shitload of margin notes. Language, Holly. Sorry, Dad. We're starting with Agatha Christie's Murder on the Links. And we recommend listening to the episodes in chronological order for obvious reasons. Okay, here's the podcast. Hey. Hello. Hey, Dad. Hi, Holly. Hang on, it's got a, something strange happened with... Recording. Yeah. Hi, Holly. Yeah. So here we are again. Here we are. Dad looks great this morning. I am just, you know, I'm at my home, so I'm in my cozies. But Dad is has a like a little shirt, a very crisp collar, um, and a, a little black knit. Yeah. And a brown cord um, jacket, which often black and brown, it's like it's very hit and miss. And today, it's a hit. Thank you. It's a real hit. Thank you. No, I'm I'm a big fan yeah. of this particular jacket. You know, I if only I smoked a pipe, I would feel complete. But could you start? Could you just get one? Could I just get one and just and hold just kind it? Kind of like on it. Um, yeah, it's and other than a deerstalker hat, and I'd start. It would become this whole other. I'd be the wrong sleuth. You know. Well, but, but we haven't boxed ourselves in here. We could do a Sherlock. A bunch of those ones are public domain because they're old as fuck. Oh, hell, hell. We could do some of the short stories after this. That's the next big venture. You yeah. re- reckon they you could- are some of the funniest as well. Oh, he's I a- find like Watson's admiration and just like basically lust for Sherlock Holmes is tangible and very enjoyable. I do think a lot of the mysteries are sillier than yeah. Agatha Christie's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is... Which is saying something because these are very silly. But there's, you know, lots of. But yeah, but what, once snakes again, getting mistaken for ribbons and things like that going on. But it's a di- often a different project. He's often doing Conan Doyle's often doing a. I think we mentioned this. No, we didn't say this in the first ep, did we? We was talking about it generally. Um, mm. He's often doing like a, a locked door style mystery where you're solving a puzzle yeah. in situ, and it is often just a single event and. Um, he doesn't. It isn't often something that's built over a, a big. There's not a big drama behind it. Um, mm. And the 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 only other the only times when he does that, he reaches right back into the past, you know, and suddenly we're 
um, but with the Latter Day Saints, you know, dozens of years oh, ago Lord. and all that stuff. But Those it, it, ones. But the actual mystery is usually quite contained. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and often a lot of them aren't murders. Mm. I find maybe maybe even more of them aren't murders. There's lots of well, well, my, well, maybe we should do lots, lots more burglaries, lots of lots well, of thieves. Maybe we should do like an every second weekend family edition. You know, without the gruesome. This whole killings. thing is a family edition. Oh, I see. So like a, a t- like a, a a nice one. About but you, just- you'd have to watch your language, and probably I would have to watch my language a bit too. Yeah. I mean, I so could, I could blip it. So yes, let's do the recapitulation. One of my favourite words, cap. It's is that what re- recap is? That's not what recap is short for. Yeah, go back to the top. Oh. Oh. And cap. If I had time, I'd tell you all the interesting connections for the word cap. It is actually Maybe. related to the English word head, but we don't have time today, do we? Okay. <laughs> um, okay. A so a bonus app coming coming your way. Um, where should we start? I've kind of forgotten. Well, we were at the Wonka. golf course and this was when we had the contretemps between um, Giraud and Poirot. Okay. I was being Giraud, wasn't I? Yes. Why don't you go from okay. the although I like the detective heartily or dislike the detective heartily. That's useful drama. Okay. Okay. Although I disliked the detective heartily, I nevertheless was secretly impressed. Efficiency seemed to radiate from the man. I could not help feeling that, so far, Poirot had not greatly distinguished himself, and it vexed me. He seemed to be directing his attention to all sorts of silly, puerile points that had nothing to do with the case. Indeed, at this juncture, he suddenly asked, uh, Monsieur Bex, tell me, I pray you, the meaning of this whitewashed line that extends all around the grave? Is it a device of the police? No, Monsieur Perrault. It is an affair of the golf course. It shows that there is here to be a bunker, as you call it. A bunker? Perrault turned to me. That is the irregular hole filled with sand and a bank at one side, is it not? I concurred. Monsieur Renaud, without doubt he played the golf. Yes, he was a keen golfer. It's mainly owing to him and to his large subscription that this work is being carried forward. He even had a say in the designing of it. Hmm. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. Then he remarked. It is not a very good choice they made of a spot to bury the body. When the men began to dig up the ground, all would have been discovered. Exactly, cried Giraud triumphantly. And that proves that they were strangers to the place. It's an excellent piece of indirect evidence. Yes, said Poirot doubtfully. No one who knew would bury a body there unless they wanted it to be discovered. (laughs) And that is clearly absurd, is it not? Giraud did not even trouble to reply. Yes, said Poirot in a somewhat dissatisfied voice. Yes, undoubtedly. Absurd. I think Poro's got some got some cheeky ideas that he's not sharing. Yes. For a change. 
But, but aren't these truly puerile points? Or... Oh, they're very puerile. Puerile right. to the bone. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they won't come back later and we'll find out. They actually contained so much meaning. Yes. I want to find out. Obviously, there's something behind this. We probably, we probably went all this ground last fortnight. But yes, there's something mm-hmm. about this whole late in this ground in this particular way. But I have a suspicion the next chapter won't tell us either, so we better get through it and find out what's at play. Oh, no, now we're on to the... De- okay, how do you pronounce Dubrai? Pretty good. Dubrai. Do, but Dubrai. Do. Dubrai. Just for listeners, it is spelt D-A-U-B-R-E-U-I-L. So now you can correct all both of you. our pronunciations at home. Um. Yeah, all you Frenchies. <laughs> Dubrai. Okay. So now we're on to chapter seven. That's correct, yes? Yes. Perfectly pronounced. Seven. <laughs> you can work, you've been working on that. Next up. The mysterious Madame de Bray. As we retraced our steps to the house, Monsieur Bex excused himself for leaving us, explaining that he must immediately acquaint the examining magistrate with the fact of Giraud's arrival. Giraud himself had been obviously delighted when Poirot declared that he had seen all he wanted. The last thing we observed as we left the spot was Giraud, crawling about on all fours, with a thoroughness in his search that I could not but admire. Poirot guessed my thoughts, for as soon as we were alone, he remarked ironically, At last you have seen the detective you admire. The human foxhound. Is it not so, my friend? At any rate, he's doing something. I said with asperity. What's asperity? He stumped. Yeah, I've, 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 but he's, yeah. Just gonna quickly Google it. Google it. It's like I've, I've seen it and just assumed it meant slightly, um, sharp. That's how I've always assumed it. What I've assumed it meant. Harshness of tone or manner. Well, then, yes. Okay. Sharp, sharp, yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. If there's anything to find, he'll find it. Now you... Eh bien, I also have found something. A piece of lead piping. Nonsense, Poirot. You know very well that's got nothing to do with it. I meant little things. Traces that may lead us infallibly to the murderers. Mon ami, a clue of two feet long is every bit as valuable as one measuring two millimetres. But it is the romantic idea that all important clues must be infinitesimal. As to the piece of lead piping having nothing to do with the crime, you say that because Giraud told you so. No. As I was about to interpose a question... We will say no more. Leave Giraud to his search and me to my ideas. The case seems straightforward enough, and yet, and yet, mon ami, I am not satisfied. And do you know why? Because of the wristwatch that is two hours fast. And then, there are several curious little points that do not seem to fit in. For instance, if the object of the murders was revenge, why... Did they not stab Renault in his sleep and have done with it? They wanted the secret, I reminded him. 
Poirot brushed a speck of dust from his sleeve with a dissatisfied air. Well, where is this secret? Presumably, some distance away since they wish him to dress himself. Yet he is found murdered, close at hand, almost within earshot of the house. Then again, it is pure chance that a weapon such as the dagger should be lying about casually, ready to hand. He paused, frowning, and then went on. Why did the servants hear nothing? Were they drugged? Was there an accomplice? And did that accomplice see to it that the front door should remain open? I wonder if... He stopped abruptly. We had reached the drive in front of the house. Suddenly, he turned to me. My friend, I'm about to surprise you, to please you. I have taken your approaches to heart. We will examine some footprints. Where? In that right-hand bed yonder. Monsieur Bex says that they are the footprints of the gardener. Let us see if this is so. See, he approaches with his wheelbarrow. Indeed, an elderly man was just crossing the drive with a barrow full of seedlings. Poirot called to him, and he set down the barrow and came hobbling towards us. You were going to ask him for one of his boots to compare with the footmarks? I asked, breathlessly. My faith in Poirot revived a little. Since he said the footprints in his right-hand bed were important, presumably they were. Exactly, said Poirot. But won't he think it very odd? He will not think about it at all. We could say no more, for the old man had joined us. You want me for something, monsieur? Yes. You have been a gardener here for a long time, haven't you? Twenty-four uh, years, monsieur. And your name is Auguste, monsieur. I was admiring these magnificent geraniums. They are truly superb. They have been planted long. Uh, some time, monsieur. But, of course... To keep the beds looking smart, one must keep bedding out a few new plants and remove those that are over, besides keeping the old blooms well picked off. You put in some new plants yesterday, didn't you? Uh, those in the middle there and in the other bed also. <laughs> Monsieur has a sharp eye. It takes always a day or two for them to pick up. Yes, I, I put ten new plants in each bed just last night. As Monsieur doubtless knows, one should not put in plants when the sun is hot. Auguste was charmed with Poirot's interest and was quite inclined to be... Garrulous. 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 What is garrulous? Chatty. Huh. Um, that is a splendid specimen there, said Poirot, pointing. Might I perhaps have a cutting of it? But certainly, monsieur. The old fellow stepped into the bed and carefully took a slip from the plant Poirot had admired. Poirot was profuse in his thanks, and Auguste departed to his barrow. You see? said Poirot with a smile as he bent over the bed to examine the indentation of the gardener's hobnailed boot. It is quite simple. I did not realize that the foot would be inside the boot. You do not use your excellent mental capacity sufficiently. Well, what of the footmark? I examined the bed carefully. All the footmarks in the bed were made by the same boot, I said, at length, 
after careful study. You think so? Eh bien, I agree with you, said Poirot. He seemed quite uninterested and as though he were thinking of something else. At any rate, I remarked, you will have one B less in your bonnet now. Mon Dieu! But what an idiom! What does it mean? What I meant was that now you'll give up your interest in these footmarks. But to my surprise, Poirot shook his head. Oh, no, no, mon ami. At last I am on the right track. I am still in the dark. But as I hinted just now to Monsieur Bex, these footmarks are the most important and interesting thing in the case. That poor Giraud. I should not be surprised if he took no notice of them whatever. At that moment, the front door opened, and Monsieur Ote and the commissary came down the steps. Ah, Monsieur Perrault, we were coming to look for you, said the magistrate. It is getting late, but I wish to pay a visit to Madame d'Aubreuil. Without doubt, she will be very much upset by Monsieur Renault's death, and we may be fortunate enough to get a clue from her. The secret that he did not confide to his wife, it is possible that he may have told it to the woman whose love held him enslaved. We know where our Samsons are weak, don't we? We said no more, but fell into line. Poirot walked with the examining magistrate, and the commissary and I followed a few paces behind. There is no doubt that Françoise's story is substantially correct, he remarked to me in a confidential tone. I have been telephoning headquarters. It seems that three times in the last three weeks, that is to say, since the arrival of Monsieur Renault at Merlinville, Madame de Bray has paid a large sum in notes into her banking account. Altogether, the sum totals 200,000 francs. Oof. Dear me, I said, considering. That must be something like 4,000 pounds. Precisely. Yes, there can be no doubt that he was absolutely infatuated. But it remains to be seen whether he confided his secret to her. The examining magistrate is hopeful, but I hardly share his views. During this conversation, we were walking down the lane towards the fork in the road, where our car had halted earlier in the afternoon. And in another moment, I realised that the Villa Marguerite, the home of the mysterious Madame de Bray, was the small house from which the beautiful girl had emerged. She has lived here for many years, said the commissary, nodding his head towards the house. Very quietly, very unobtrusively. She seems to have no friends or relations other than the acquaintances she has made in Merlinville. She never refers to the past, nor to her husband. One does not even know if he is alive or dead. There is a mystery about her, you comprehend. I nodded. My interest growing. And the daughter, <laughs> I ventured? A truly beautiful young girl. Modest, devout, all that she should be. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, fine. Slightly upset at certain levels, but I'll proceed again. A truly beautiful yeah. young girl. <laughs> modest, devout, all that she should be. One pities her, for though she may know nothing of the past... A man who wants to ask her hand in marriage must necessarily inform himself, and then... The commissary shrugged his shoulders cynically. But it would not be her fault, I cried, with rising indignation. No. But what will you? 
A man is particular about his wife's antecedents. I was prevented from further argument by our arrival at the door. Monsieur Ote rang the bell. A few minutes elapsed, and then we heard a footfall within, and the door was opened. On the threshold stood my young goddess of that afternoon. When she saw us, the colour left her cheeks, leaving her deathly white, and her eyes widened with apprehension. There was no doubt about it. She was afraid. Mademoiselle Dobreuil, said Monsieur Ote, sweeping off his hat. We regret indefinitely, I repeat that please, we regret infinitely to disturb you. But the exigencies of the law, you comprehend? My compliments to Madame your mother. And will she have the goodness to grant me a few moments' interview? For a moment, the girl stood motionless. Her left hand was pressed to her side, as though to still the sudden, unconquerable agitation of her heart. But she mastered herself and said in a low voice, I will go and see. Please, come inside. She entered a room on the left of the hall, and we heard the low murmur of her voice, and then another voice, much the same in timber, but with a slightly harder inflection behind its mellow roundness, said, But certainly, ask them to enter. In another minute, we were face to face with the mysterious Madame de Bray. She was not nearly so tall as her daughter, and the rounded curves of her figure had all the grace of full maturity. <laughs> Fuck. Mm. Mm. You gotta have that. Yes, you gotta have the rounded curves of your figure having all the grace of full maturity. You know? <laughs> I have no idea what this means. Her hair, again, unlike her daughter's, was dark and parted in the middle, in the Madonna style. <laughs> her eyes, half hidden by the drooping lids, were blue. Though very well preserved. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> very well preserved. <laughs> She's very well preserved. Though very well preserved, she was certainly no longer young, but her charm was of the quality which is independent of age. Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> what a favour. <sighs> okay. What does this old bag say? You wish to see me, monsieur? She asked. Yes, madame. <clears throat> monsieur Ate cleared his throat. I am investigating the death of monsieur Renaud. You have heard of it, no doubt. She bowed her head without speaking. Her expression did not change. We came to ask you whether you can throw any light upon the circumstances surrounding it. I? The surprise of her tone was excellent. Yes, madame. We have reason to believe that you were in the habit of visiting the dead man at his villa. In the evenings. Is that so? The colour rose in the lady's pale cheeks, but she replied quietly. I deny your right to ask me such a question. Madame, we are investigating a murder. Well, what of it? I had nothing at all to do with the murder. Madame, we do not say that for a moment. But you knew the dead man well. Did he ever confide in you as to... Any danger that threatened him? Never. Did he ever mention his life in Santiago and any enemies he may have made there? No. 
Then you can give us no help at all. I fear not. I really do not see why you should come to me. Cannot his wife tell you what you want to know? Her voice held a slender inflection of irony. Mrs. Renault has told us all she can. Ah, said Madame de Bray. I wonder... You wonder what, madame? Nothing. The examining magistrate looked at her. He was aware that he was fighting a duel and that he had no mean antagonist. You persist in your statement that Monsieur Renault confided nothing to you? Why should you think it likely that he should confide in me? Because, madame, said Monsieur Otte with calculated brutality, a man tells to his mistress what he does not always tell to his wife. Ah! She sprang forward. Her eyes flashed fire. Monsieur, you insult me, and before my daughter. I can tell you nothing. Have the goodness to leave my house. The honours undoubtedly rested with the lady. We left the Villa Marguerite like a shamefaced pack of schoolboys. The magistrate muttered angry ejaculations to himself. <laughs> Poirot seemed lost in thought. <laughs> Suddenly, he came out of his reverie with a start and inquired of Monsieur Ote if there was a good hotel near at hand. There is a small place in the Hotel de Bain on this side of the town, a few hundred yards down the street. It will be handy for your investigations. We will see you in the morning then, I presume. Yes, I thank you, Monsieur Ote. With mutual civilities, we parted company, Poirot and I going towards Merlinville, and the others returning to the Villa Genevieve. The French police system is very marvellous. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll give you your cue again. The, and you can say the interpolation as you choose. The French police system is very marvellous, said Poirot, looking after them. The information they possess about everyone's life, down to the most commonplace detail, is extraordinary. Though he has only been here a little over six weeks, they are perfectly well acquainted with Monsieur Renault's tastes and pursuits, and at a moment's notice they can produce information as to Madame de Broglie's banking account and the sums that have lately been paid in. Undoubtedly, the dossier is a great institution. But what is that? He turned sharply. A figure was running hatless down the road after us. Oh my gosh, hatless. Yeah, because she was... We must, know she's... must be important. It was Marthe de Bray. Is it, is it Marthe or Marthe? Marthe. Oh, well, I, there's no accent, so it's been Marthe. Marthe de Bray. Okay. I beg I your pardon, she cried breathlessly as she reached us. I, I should not do this, I know. You must not tell my mother. But is it true what the people say? That Monsieur Renault called in a detective before he died and, and that you are he? Yes, mademoiselle, said Poirot gently. It is quite true. But how did you learn it? Françoise told our Amélie, exclaimed Marthe with a blush. Poirot made a grimace. The secrecy. It is impossible in an affair of this kind. Not that it matters. Well, mademoiselle, what is it you want to know? The girl hesitated. She seemed longing, yet fearing, to speak. At last, almost at a whisper, she asked, Is anyone suspected? Poirot eyed her keenly. Then he replied evasively, 
Suspicion is in the air at present, mademoiselle. Yes, I know. But anyone in particular? Why do you want to know? The girl seemed frightened by the question. All at once, Poirot's words about her earlier in the day occurred to me. The girl with anxious eyes. Monsieur Renaud was always very kind to me, she replied at last. It is natural that I should be interested. I see, said Poirot. Well, mademoiselle, suspicion at present is hovering around two persons. Two? I could have sworn there was a note of surprise and relief in her voice. Their names are unknown, but they are presumed to be Chileans from Santiago. And now, mademoiselle, you see what comes of being young and beautiful. I have betrayed professional secrets for you. <laughs> the girl laughed merrily, weirdly, and then rather shyly. <laughs> she thanked him. I must run back now. Maman will miss me. And she turned and ran back up the road, looking like a modern Atalanta? Is that a goddess of some kind? Yeah, one can only guess. Atalanta. Mm. Atalanta. Please, dear listeners. I'm just going to... Oh, yeah, no, we, we, don't, don't phone in. It's weeks ago already, and we found out long ago. <laughs> a mythological character. A character in Greek, in Greek mythology. A virgin huntress, unwilling to marry, and loved by the hero Malika. Yeah, well, Some say little... that a she-bear suckled and cared for Atalanta until hunters <gasps> found and raised her. Yeah, and I she know. learned to fight and hunt as a bear would. She looks pretty sick. I'm going to look back into that later. Yeah. No, yeah I, 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 Greek I mythology, remember, man. It's tight. Yeah, it's, it's all these little small stories that I you often gloss, get glossed over. You know, you hear about the big gods, the, the Zeus's. You know, you get sometimes the odd Persephone gets chucked in there. But no, these little, these, you know, Atalantas, they slip under the yeah. radar. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she turned and ran back up the road, looking like a modern Atalanta. I stared after her. Mon ami. Said Perrault in his gentle, ironical voice. Is it that we are to remain planted here all night just because you have seen a beautiful young woman? And your head is in a whirl. I laughed and apologized. But she is beautiful, Poirot. We we know you've said it about yeah, four we're getting, times we're painting in the a last very... paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, she's a babe. We got it. But she is beautiful, Poirot. Anyone might be excused for being bowled over by her. But to my surprise, Poirot shook his head very earnestly. <laughs> ah, mon ami, do not set your heart on Marthe d'Aubreuil. She is not for you, that one. Take it from Papa Poirot. Why, I cried, the commissary assured me that she was as good as she is beautiful. A perfect angel. Hmm. Some of the greatest criminals I have known had the faces of angels, remarked Poirot cheerfully. A malformation of the grey cells may coincide quite easily with the face of a Madonna. Poirot, I cried, horrified. You cannot mean that you suspect an innocent child like this. <laughs> Do not excite yourself. I have not said that I suspected her. But you must admit that her anxiety to know about the case is somewhat unusual. For once, I see farther than you do, I said. 
Her anxiety is not for herself, but for her mother. My friends, said Poirot, as usual, you see nothing at all. Madame de Broglie is very well able to look after herself without her daughter worrying about her. I admit, I was teasing you just now. But all the same, I repeat what I said before. Do not set your heart on that girl. She is not for you. I, Hercule Perrault, know it. Sacré! If only I could remember where I had seen that face. What face? I asked, surprised. The daughter's? No. The mother's. Noting my surprise, he nodded emphatically. But yes, it is as I tell you. It was a long time ago, when I was still with the police in Belgium. I have never actually seen the woman before. But I have seen her picture. And in connection with some case... I rather fancy... Yes? I may be mistaken, but I rather fancy that it was a murder case. Ooh. Are we Is gonna there have, any we... other kind of case? <laughs> yeah, that, that did kind of <laughs> slightly bother me. It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> twist. Yeah. <laughs> what a reveal. What a clue. <laughs> how, how could that, how, the two things in the one space? I mean, mm. who would have thought? I really liked that chapter. Mm. That was I liked solid. the, it was going places, it was drama, there was different levels. Um, there were several different, we were like, we were over at the house, we, we were excusing uh, Monsieur Bex. We were talking to Auguste. Then we went to the Villa Marguerite. Then we have Jassim. I love Just Poirot and Hastings' time. You yeah. Know? Just yeah. them having a little debrief. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was jam-packed. But a cast of characters, not just middle-aged French crime enforcement agents. Yeah. Um, law enforcement agents. You don't enforce crime, you enforce law. Yeah, I think that's what I mean. Um, the law, <laughs> the law. Um, yeah. So, but nothing. So obviously, the little grey cells are clicking over in there. Um, oh, I think Poirot's so got it solved teasing. already. But my God, it's only chapter <laughs> seven. I mean, why are we going to wait now to the end? Uh, I'll just turn to the end is... now, shall I? Oh no! Oh oh, oh my! No. Oh oh my! Who would have thought it? <laughs> No, did I tell you that you know how I told you about the podcast that I that I like that is uh, Phoebe Judge from Criminal mm. um, is now reading this book, yeah, um, as her like one chapter a day book, and so like first she did uh, the Affair at Styles, and then she did Hand of Baskervilles, and then she did the Moonstone, and now she's doing this book, and it's so sad to me. This book, because, yeah. Because I was loving reading it. I was like, it was a chapter a day and I got to listen to a chapter of Phoebe Judge reading it. But now I can't listen to the podcast that I was listening to because I want, I don't want to have the, the mystery spoiled for me while we're reading, while we're doing this. We're just going to have to binge record Holly. 
We're just going to have to do all the <laughs> next 10 episodes in one afternoon and evening and then st- and then resume every second Sunday with the next novel. And, That's- and, and, and please get in touch with her and tell her what book are you doing next so that we can do something different. Oh, yeah. When I... <laughs> I'll just I'll just DM Phoebe Judge. Hey babe, what's what's yeah, your next sure, book? But she'll have she'll she'll get she'll get comments and likes and all that stuff. You know, you know that stuff. I just send her a little DM and say like, I know you have like um a hundred thousand listeners. I make this podcast with my dad where we redo a mystery book and eighteen people listen to it. Um, I personally need to know what your next book is going to be. So should we guess? You never know. Her- she she seems like a great lady. She might tell me. Okay, um, we are at chapter eight, an unexpected meeting. We were up at the villa, betimes. God damn it, it's the first sentence. What the fuck is betimes? Betimes, sometime. It's usually, we've usually meant it to mean occasionally, but here it means sometime. Okay. At a time, at betimes, at a time. Yeah. Okay. But it's uh it's it's this is very old fashioned English for the for this book, I would have thought, to use that word. So Okay. We were up at the villa betimes next morning. The man on guard at the gate did not bar our way this time. Instead he respectfully saluted us, and we passed on to the house. The maid Leonie was just coming down the stairs and seemed not averse to the prospect of a little conversation. Poirot inquired after the health of Mrs. Renault. Leonie shook her head. She is terribly upset. The poor lady. She will eat nothing, but nothing. And she is as pale as a ghost. It is heartrending to see her. Ah, it is not I who would grieve like that for a man who had deceived me with another woman. Mm. Poirot nodded sympathetically. What you say is very just. But what will you? The heart of a woman who loves will forgive many blows. Still... Undoubtedly, there must have been many scenes of recrimination between them in the last few months. Again, Leonie shook her head. Never, monsieur. Never have I heard madame utter a word of protest, of reproach even. She had the temper and disposition of an angel, quite different to monsieur. Monsieur Renaud had not the temper of an angel? Far from it. When he enraged himself, the whole house knew of it. The day that he quarrelled with monsieur Jacques, ma foi! They might have heard in the marketplace they shouted so loud. Indeed, said Poirot. And when did this quarrel take place? Oh, it was just before Monsieur Jacques went to Paris, although he missed the train. He came out of the library and caught up his bag, which he had left in the hall. The automobile, it was being repaired, and he had to run for the station. I was dusting the salon and saw him pass, and his face was white, white, with two burning spots of red. Ah, but he was angry. Leonie was enjoying her narrative thoroughly. And the dispute? What was it about? Ah, that I do not know, confessed Leonie. It is true that they shouted, but their voices were so loud and high, and they spoke so fast that only one well acquainted with English could have comprehended. But Monsieur, he was like a thundercloud all day, impossible to please him. The sound of a door shutting upstairs cut short Leonie's loquacity. And Françoise, who awaits me, she exclaimed, awakening to a tardy remembrance of her duties. That old one, she always scolds. One moment, mademoiselle. The examining magistrate, where is he? They have gone out to look at the automobile in the garage. Monsieur the commissary had some idea that it might have been used on the night of the murder. 
Quelle idée? murmured Poirot as the girl disappeared. You will go out and join them? No. I shall await their return in the salon. It is cool there on this hot morning. This placid way of taking things did not quite commend itself to me. If you don't mind, I said and hesitated. Not in the least. You wish to investigate on your own account, eh? Well, I'd rather like to have a look at Giraud, if he's anywhere about, and see what he's up to. The human foxhound, murmured Poirot, as he leaned back in a comfortable chair and closed his eyes. By all means, mon, my friend. Au revoir. I strolled out of the front door. It was certainly hot. I turned up the path we had taken the day before. I had to mind to study the scene of the crime myself. I did not go directly to the spot, however, but turned aside into the bushes so as to come out on the links some hundred yards or so, farther to the right. The shrubbery here was much denser, and I had quite a struggle to force my way through. When I emerged at last on the course, it was quite unexpectedly with such vigour that I cannoned heavily into a young lady who had been standing with her back to the plantation. She unnaturally gave a surprised shriek. But I too uttered an exclamation of surprise, for it was my friend of the train, Cinderella. The surprise was mutual. You! You! We both exclaimed simultaneously. The young lady recovered herself first. My only aunt! She exclaimed. What are you doing here? For the matter of that, what are you? I retorted. When I last saw you, the day before yesterday, you were trotting home to England like a good little boy. When last I saw you, I said, you were trotting home with your sister like a good little girl. By the way, how is your sister? A flash of white teeth rewarded me. How kind of you to ask. My sister is well, I thank you. She is here with you? She is remained in town, said the minx with dignity. I don't believe you've got a sister, I laughed. If you have, her name is Harris. Do you remember mine? She asked with a smile. Cinderella, but you're going to tell me the real one now, aren't you? She shook her head with a wicked look. Not even why you're here? Oh, that! I suppose you've heard of members of my profession resting. At expensive French watering places. Dirt cheap if you know where to go. I eyed her keenly. Still, you'd no intention of coming here when I met you two days ago. We all have our disappointments, said Miss Cinderella, sententiously. Sententiously? Like, like a... A pronouncement, an old wise man's pronouncement, wise person's pronouncement. Um, there now, I've told you as much as is good for you. Little boys should not be inquisitive. You've not yet told me what you're doing here. You remember my telling you that my great friend was a detective? Yes. And perhaps you've heard about this crime at the Villa Genevieve. She stared at me, her breast heaved... And her eyes grew wide and round. You don't mean that you're in on that? I nodded. There was no doubt that I had scored heavily. Her emotion as she regarded me was only too evident. For some few seconds she remained silent, staring at me. Then she nodded her head emphatically. Well, if that doesn't beat the band, tote me round. I want to see all the horrors. What do you mean? What I say. Bless the boy. Didn't I tell you I doted on crimes? 
I've been nosing around for hours. It's a real piece of luck happening on you this way. Come on, show me all the sights. But look here, wait a minute. I can't. Nobody's allowed in. They're awfully strict. Ooh, aren't you and your friend the big bugs? I was loath to relinquish my position of importance. Why are you so keen? I asked weakly. And what is you want to see? Oh, everything. The place where it happened, and, and the weapon, and, and the body, and any fingerprints or anything, you know, interesting like that. I've never had a chance before of being right in on a murder like this. It'll last me all my life. I turned away, sickened. What are women coming to nowadays? The girl's ghoulish excitement nauseated me. Oh, come off your high horse, said the lady suddenly. And don't give yourself airs. When you got called to this job, did you put your nose in the air and say that it was a nasty business and you shouldn't be mixed up in it? No, but... If you'd been here on a holiday, wouldn't you be nosing around just the same as I am? Of course you would. I'm a man. You're a woman. Your idea of a woman is someone who gets on a chair and shrieks if she sees a mouse. That's all prehistoric. But you will show me around, won't you? You see... It might make a big difference to me. Like the, you know, feminism. Yeah. So that we can see murdered bodies. That's what feminism is all about. Yeah, that's what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. I mean. That's when we know that we're equal is when we can go to strange crime scenes and just wander around (laughs) muddying up evidence. (laughs) And not getting on chairs shrieking. I mean, that hasn't happened since prehistoric times, when it was quite common. Women <laughs> yeah. used to do that all over the all place. All the time. No, there was, there's fossilised remains of women <laughs> on chairs with a fossilised mouse in the corner. It's, it's well yeah. known. Mm-hmm. Um, in what way? They're keeping all the reporters out. I might make a big scoop with one of the papers. You don't know how much they pay for a bit of inside stuff. I hesitated. She slipped a small, soft hand into mine. Please, there's a dear. I capitulated. Secretly, I knew I should rather enjoy the part of showman. (laughs) Yeah. We repair... (laughs) No shit, Hastings. (laughs) Like it'll do you any damn good, but you do it anyway. (laughs) Incorrigible. We repaired first to the spot where the body had been discovered. A man was on guard there who saluted respectfully, knowing me by sight, and raised no questions as to my companion. Presumably he regarded her as vouched for by me. I explained to Cinderella just how the discovery had been made, and she listened attentively, sometimes putting in an intelligent question. Then we turned our steps in the direction of the villa. I proceeded rather cautiously, for, truth to tell, I was not at all anxious to meet anyone. I took the girl through the shrubbery, round to the back of the house, where the small shed was. I recollected that yesterday evening, after relocking the door, Monsieur Bex had left the key with the sergeant de ville, Marchot, in case Monsieur Giraud should require it while we are upstairs. I thought it quite likely that the Souret detective, after using it, had returned it to Marchot again. Leaving the girl out of sight in the shrubbery, I entered the house. Marchot was on duty outside the door of the salon. From within came the murmur of voices. Monsieur desires Monsieur Ote. He is within. He is again interrogating Françoise. No, I said hastily. I don't want him. 
but I should very much like the key of the shed outside if it is not against regulations. But certainly, monsieur. He produced it. Here it is. Monsieur Ote gave orders that all facilities were to be displaced at your disposal. You will return it to me when you have finished out there, that is all. Of course. I felt a thrill of satisfaction as I realized that in Michaud's eyes, at least, I ranked equally in importance with Poirot. The girl was waiting for me. She gave an exclamation of delight as she saw the key in my hand. You've got it then. Of course, I said coolly. All the same, you know what I'm doing is highly irregular. Well, you've been a perfect duck, and I shan't forget it. Come along. They, they can't see us from the house, can they? Wait a minute. I arrested her eager advance. I won't stop you if you really wish to go in. But do you? You've seen the grave and the grounds, and you've heard all the details of the affair. Isn't that enough for you? This is going to be gruesome, you know, and unpleasant. She looked at me for a moment with an expression that I could not quite fathom. Then she laughed. <laughs> me for the horrors, she said. Come along. In silence, we arrived at the door of the shed. I opened it and we passed in. I walked over to the body and gently pulled down the sheet, as Bex had done the preceding afternoon. A, li a little gasping sound escaped from the girl's lips, and I turned and looked at her. There was horror on her face now, and those debonair high spirits of hers were quenched utterly. She had not chosen to listen to my advice, and she was punished now for her disregard of it. I felt singularly merciless towards her. She should go through with it now. I turned the corpse over gently. You see, I said, he was stabbed in the back. Her voice was almost soundless. With what? That dagger. Suddenly the girl reeled and then sank down in a heap. I sprang to her assistance. You are faint. Come out of here. It has been too much for you. Water. She murmured. Quick. Water. I left her and rushed into the house. Fortunately, none of the servants were about, and I was able to secure a glass of water unobserved and add a few drops of brandy from a pocket flask. In a few minutes, I was back again. The girl was lying as I had left her, but a few sips of the brandy and water revived her in a marvellous manner. Take me out of here. Oh, quickly, quickly! She cried, shuddering. Supporting her with my arm, I led her into the air, and she pulled the door behind her. Then she drew a deep breath. Oh, that's better. Oh, it was horrible. Why did you ever let me go in? I felt this to be so feminine that I could not forbear a smile. Secretly, I was not dissatisfied with her collapse. It proved that she was not quite so callous as I had thought her. After all, she was little more than a child, and her curiosity had probably been of the unthinking order. I did my best to stop you, you know, I said gently. I suppose you did. Well, goodbye. Look here, you can't start off like that, all alone. You're not fit for it. I insist on accompanying you back to Merlinville. N nonsense. I'm quite all right now. Supposing you felt faint again? No, I shall come with you. But this she combated with a good deal of energy. In the end, however, I prevailed so far as to be allowed to accompany her to the outskirts of town. We retraced our steps over our former route, passing the grave again, and making a detour onto the road. Where the first straggling line of shops began, she stopped and held out her hand. Goodbye. 
And thank you ever so much for coming with me. Are you sure you're all right now? Quite. Thanks. And I, I hope you won't get into any trouble over showing me things. I disclaimed the idea lightly. Well, goodbye. Au revoir, I corrected. If you're staying here, we shall meet again. She flashed a smile at me. That's so. Au revoir, then. Wait a second. You haven't told me your address. Oh, I'm staying at the Hôtel de Fer. It's a little place, but quite good. Come and look me up tomorrow. I will, I said, with perhaps rather unnecessary empressement. I watched her out of sight, and then turned and retraced my step to the villa. Sorry. <laughs> I <feel that. laughs> I remembered that I had not relocked the door of the shed. Fortunately, no one had noticed the oversight, and turning the key, I removed it and returned it to the sergent de ville. And as I did so, it came upon me suddenly that though Cinderella had given me her address, I still did not know her name. Hmm. Well, that was terrible. What do you mean? Hastings, what the fuck are you doing? There is um 18-year-old woman pops up. 17. You don't know her name. And you show her dead body. Um, um, you show her a murder scene. Mm. You lead her around a whole <laughs> yeah. house. Um, you leave her alone with in a room with a, <laughs> with a dead body. You have no idea who she is. What a fool. Yeah. But I guess, it, yeah, nothing really mysterious or plot. There were no clues in that chapter it was no this was pure pure drama this was like a stage a stage in the clearly fruitless escapade of the heart (laughs) to which hastings is Uh, damned condemned yeah he might get a date out of it you know oh yeah well he gets to at least play his I mean, part was, of showman. That was kind which, of a date. It was. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. That's just that's my idea of a hot time with a girl. Take around, <laughs> look at a corpse, you know. I did love that he turned the corpse over gently and I was like, oh, that's a lot more respect for it than uh, Poirot showed. Yeah. So at least yeah. he's, I, you know. It didn't say how he put him down. No, that's true. how he put it down. And considering she fainted, he probably did just kind of let drop it and dash off. And I love that he just, you know, a few drops of brandy from my pocket flask. You know, it's just the morning time, just carrying around my brandy. What Um, is that? I mean, these guys just must have been just that little bit alcohol addicted all the time. Just because you need it as a pick-me-up. I think one of the, one of the cute things about like the recurring Poirot things is that like everyone else is always getting sloshed. Yes. Um, you know, like cocktails came really kind of came in vogue and everyone was sort of going like, you know what's great? Having five gins. Um yes. and Poirot's always like, Do you have some like menthol syrup? And he's having the like the these like little tiny cups of the weakest liqueurs all the time. That's kind of his thing. So, so it, it's like, is is he a really great detective or is he the only one who's not the fucking only, smashed? The only straight guy <laughs> in the room. Yeah, well, that's 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 kind of my theory. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's my, that my it's how I approach life. Um, Sometimes you just have to show up not drunk and you'll be the best person at your job. It's a, the, the path it's was a, amazing. The bar was so low. <laughs> try that, everybody. See, how, see if it works for you. Yeah. 
I'm um, gonna give it a try. No, it sounds boring. <sighs> well, we live in a, a drinking culture, my friend. It's a drinking gosh, culture. You sure do. Yeah, I had a, like a couple of drinks last night, and I think just uh, it really hadn't been sleeping. Trying to uh, get a good night's sleep in the global pandemic is, uh, I think, being challenging for a lot of people. There's um, right. a lot of anxieties that you can kind of keep at bay. And then you hop into bed and you're like, but what if everyone died <laughs> or something? Um, and yeah, it's, it can make sleeping a little bit more difficult than usual. Anyway, this is all to say that I, I think that my lack of uh, sleep and stress that I was putting my body under kind of amplified my couple of drinks into making it feel like I'd had one million drinks. Yeah. Sometimes oh, when you've got all that, yeah, when you just unlock all the weariness that you're holding at bay with the tension, it's just mm. like, yeah, it's the floodgates. I wonder how uh, Hastings sleeps. Probably great. He's just always sipping brandy. Yeah, they say they say the alcohol is the alcohol. You see, I'm putting the in front of the things I don't normally do. Um, they're saying they say alcohol uh, isn't great for your sleep quality, and that's no, it my experience too. It. Yeah, it can help you fall asleep, but it doesn't help you stay asleep, and the sleep quality is bad. Um, but brandy's pretty weak, right? I thought it no, was like brandy a half... does the job. Yeah. Oh right. Okay. I just thought it was like half. Like it was like right. half the strength of whiskey or something. I'll have to go look at look at my label. Maybe. I think, and now that I'm saying it out loud, I realize I have no evidence to support that thing that I have in my head. It's just that I've never drunk in it and I associate it with cooking and I'm just like, yeah, it's just a bit of brandy. I, I only used to drink it back in my student days. Um, uh, or am I thinking of sherry? Is sherry weak? No. Uh, sherry... Yeah, it'd be weaker than brandy. Sherry. I think is, I'm thinking of sherry. Sherry is basically, as I understand it, it's wine with brandy in it. Right. Sherry's a for, sherry's a fortified wine, I think. So it's um, feral. Oh. Yeah. I hate. Is it like port? Well, port is a fortified port. wine too. Yeah. Oh, disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. It's like mold wine. I, you know, yeah. But I, but when I was at university, it was it was the it was the uh, bride's head revisited era, and so uh, we we're all doing BAs. We we're all doing Brandy Alexanders those days. You're sipping BAs while you're doing your BAs, and, and exactly while wearing lots of whites, lots of cri- oh. cricket cricket whites were being worn in those days and <laughs> sweaters. Uh, terrifying and sweet at the same time. Um, well, that's probably enough for for now. Um, let's log off and eat our croissants that we have. Dad and I yes. have got croissants that we uh, on Sunday mornings. We used to have them uh, in the morning. Dad would go and get them, and I would be tucked up in bed. Sometimes I would come, but usually you would just cycle out and pick up some fresh ones and bring them Shh, home. Don't, don't. T- I didn't tell your mum I was leaving you alone on Access oh, Weekends. No. no. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, fine. Every time we went to the bakery together, it was early in the morning. Together. For some reason, I had to go as well. And I definitely didn't stay in bed by myself for 10 minutes asleep. Ever. Not Ever. even a second. Not a Not single a second. moment. That would have been negligent um, parenting. Or Yeah. yeah. Horrid. Access parenting. Um, so now, but now dad and I have our croissants and we're going to go and, go and eat them. Eat them too. I'm very excited about them. Yes. Well, 
if you could lead off with the... Ah, goodbye, Dad. Goodbye, daughter. John Edward. Zach Milner-Cretney is our lovely production assistant, and the prodigious Lehman B. Smith composed our theme music. Thanks so much, team, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>